Hi, I'm Walter Hallam, and you're listening today to the Walter Hallam Ministries podcast. Get ready to receive a powerful word from God today. I'll ask you this afternoon to open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 18, where I'm beginning a series tonight. This particular series will be on the seven churches of Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul was, I believe, the the greatest apostle of them all. I believe he was the one who Jesus handpicked to replace Judas. After Judas had fallen, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 that they drew lots, they cast lots to replace him and the lot fell to Matthias. And Matthias was chosen as as a disciple to replace an apostle. He was chosen by men through the casting of the lot. And he's never heard of again in the Bible. The reason for that is really quite simple. Man is not the one who raises up apostles. God has given to the church a five-fold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And the apostle is the one that God uses to go into a region to begin uh, teaching and declaring the gospel, to establish the New Testament church, set it in order, uh, train up the workers, uh, activate those giftings and anointings, and begin to gel that together. But the, the apostolic ministry also has an anointing to destroy darkness. Spiritual darkness, where there's demonic forces and where uh, things have been held in captivity spiritually for many, many uh, centuries oftentimes, the apostolic anointing goes in and breaks that free and breaks it open. Uh, There's not an apostle on every corner. I don't believe that. You don't see it in the Bible that way, though you do see numerous people who are called apostles. There are the 12 apostles of the Lamb, of course, and then there are other that I will call lesser apostles that that are named in the scriptures also after the day of Pentecost. So somebody once said, well, the day of the apostles are over with, and I always say there's no such thing as a day of apostles. There's a God of apostles. And and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the Apostle Paul, of course, in his day, was the most effective uh, of the ministers in expanding uh, into the dark regions of the world. Though the apostles of the Lamb, the ones that Jesus had picked and served with him, certainly went all over the world. Thomas went up into India. If you go to India today, you'll see a lot of the things where, the, where Thomas was. He also went into Ethiopia. Uh, you go into Ethiopia, you'll see that. James went different directions. Uh, it's amazing. But the Apostle Paul felt like he was the apostle to the Gentile. He, uh, he said in Ephesians 3 that he felt that God had called him uh, certainly to open the light and open the gospel up to the Gentile. That's a powerful thing right there. He said, I first came to the Jew in Romans chapter 1. He never forgot that. He said, God has sent me to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But he said, I am going to the Gentiles because God will uh, open the door for me to speak to them. And in 1 Corinthians, he said, and God is opening a door that no man can shut. And in the process of the apostle Paul uh, taking the gospel into areas that were not very light, uh, he, he ran into much opposition many times. He always would make converts, but he would also have opposition. 
So can I just say in the day you and I live in today, if you share the gospel of Jesus and you live the gospel of Jesus, it's possible that someone may oppose that. In some countries, it could actually be very, very risky. It could be extremely dangerous. But may I also say that everywhere Paul went, he also had many converts. So there, in, in that apostolic anointing that, that goes into those regions, those are unique sort of people. They, they kind of cut from a different cloth, and uh, they're willing to lay down their life for Jesus Christ. They think if, if dying, and there's many powerful stories of that, of, of great men and, and, and women in that missionary type work, that apostolic work that has gone out into uh, dark regions. And uh, even uh, many of them have even lost their life for the name of Jesus. All of the apostles of the Lamb, all of Jesus' handpicked apostles, with the exception of John the Beloved, all of them were martyred for the gospel. Every single one of them was martyred, with the exception. Of, uh, of John the Beloved, and they couldn't kill him. He lived to be about 104, 103, 105, somewhere, depending on which uh, historian you read after, he lived to be over 100 years old. That's because love never fails. <laughs> Glory to God. Uh, and so we're going to see in this particular series, uh, we're going to get a lot of information and I believe we're going to see how God establishes churches. And in this particular series, I hope to show you the seven foundational points that the Apostle Paul, I believe, preached foundationally in every church, every time he would go into an area. When I began as a pastor to raise up Abundant Life Christian Center from our living room couch, my wife and I and 10 other adults started this church. I said, God, what do I teach? And the Lord took me to the book of Hebrews and showed me the seven things that the Apostle Paul focused on. And I have continued to teach those seven things uh, since day one, and I will continue to teach them along with other great principles also. But for tonight, let's continue to see this now. So we're in the book of, uh, uh, of Acts in chapter 18, uh, you'll notice the scripture says in verse 18, Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence unto Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Everyone say Priscilla and Aquila. <laughs> and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Um, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. An interesting thought right here. For he had a vow. And, it came, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. Paul left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. That was the Feast of Pentecost. Paul always liked to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, Passover, and atonement, if he could be. He said, I must keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. This was Paul's first trip to Ephesus, as far as we know. Ephesus is in what today is called Turkey. Uh, it's still there today. The city, the, 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 the actual town is there today. And I'm going to give you some historic stuff. Would y'all like to look at a couple of pictures? 
I think we can do this. Can you put up on the screen, beginning, uh, give me the Emperor Dominion, if you would, please. This guy right here, I hope y'all can see some of this. Uh, when, when, when Paul went into uh, Ephesus, Ephesus was an extremely uh, diverse, uh, huge port city. It was very uh, 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 ornately built. It was extremely built out with all of its idols, with, with its big columns. You'll see some pictures of that. And uh, Rome itself had a major a governor leadership role over its empire from Ephesus. As it would spread out from Rome, it would put leaders in certain areas. And they loved Ephesus. And it's, a, it's like a port city. It's a beautiful area. It has a huge deep water port. And so it, it's one of the greatest uh, philosophical areas in the world, extremely diverse in this day. When, when John would have gone there, in about, uh, John would have gone there somewhere around 67 AD. Uh, when John went to Ephesus, he would have come in, and shortly after that, he would have seen this statue right here uh, on a huge column uh, of the emperor Dominion, uh, who ultimately boiled him in oil and put him out on the Isle of Patmos in about um, somewhere around 90 AD. But being that as it may, uh, the, this type of, of structure, this type of architect was common all through that city. Go to the next picture for me, if you would, please. Uh, I think that's not, you're out of order with me here. That's fine. Just, no, 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 you missed one. Procurious, John's disciple. Go back one. Stay, just stay right where you are. I'm going to pick it up from right there. Don't worry about it. And then we'll move forward. What you see right here are some of the building stones. That's actually the stones. This is very interesting right here to me. Those were actually some of the stones that were, the, that were um, uh, used in the foundation and in the building of Mary, the mother of Jesus' house. She lived in Ephesus. Uh, she uh, moved there. History says, Jewish history says, and Christian history. Uh, many historians record it. And, of course, it, she's still celebrated there today. Uh, that she moved there with John somewhere around uh, somewhere in around 67 or so A.D. A very interesting thing that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, I mean, excuse me, around 44 A.D., she winds up there uh, somewhere around 44 or 47 A.D. after the dispersion uh, from Jerusalem. Interesting because Jesus had told John, does your mother take care of her? And he did until she finally died. And... Um, or her house was there. I know if you've been to, to uh, Jerusalem and you've seen the, the sepulcher or you've seen the actual uh, cathedral of Mary and all of that, that was not until uh, a thousand years later almost that that was even built. All his, history says that Mary actually wound up in Ephesus. Uh, outside the city with John, and there's nothing to say that it did not happen that way. All history points that way. So I think it's pretty interesting that for almost 1,800 years, Christians have been making pilgrimages for 1,800 years to Ephesus where John and where Mary uh, were buried. Mary was buried there, and John's uh, tomb is still there, and it's well recorded uh, go to the next picture. Let me see what it is. That's just part of the building blocks that were left of it. Next picture. That's good. That's, uh, a, that's a built house today that was built uh, supposedly the house like the house that Mary lived in. It has about 500 square feet in it. 
And it was a beautiful place. And I think that's very interesting. If you go there, you can actually see the replica of it there today. Is this interesting? Uh, go to the next picture, if you would, please. This is in Turkey. That's the one I wanted to show you right there uh, a moment ago. That's, uh, that's a, uh, a, an artwork uh, of, of, of John and uh, of the disciple Procurius. Procurius is in Acts chapter 6. There were, there were the uh, seven deacons of Acts chapter 6. And the second one was a man named Procurius. And uh, most of the deacons of Acts chapter 6 uh, became men of renown. We'll look in this series later on about Nicholas, who became uh, the, a proselyte, who became uh, a disciple and later on broke away and started his own cult. That's why you see in the book of Revelation, when God writes to the seven churches, he says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And those were the followers of Nicholas, uh, the proselyte. We'll talk about that. He was actually a Gentile uh, that had gotten converted. And this is a, uh, it's a, a very, very old uh, picture of them right here uh, that was, uh, that's taken in a basilica somewhere. Go to the next one, if you would, please. Uh, that's actually fragments uh, of the marble of the floor of Mary, the mother of Jesus' house. That's still recorded there today. It's there. It's taken from, uh, from Ephesus. And once again, there's no history to disprove that. All history and all historians record it that way. So I actually am of the opinion that that's where Mary and John uh, lived after uh, they dispersed and left uh, uh, Jerusalem. Go to the next picture, if you would, please. This would have been... This would have been, and it's there today, if you go to Ephesus today, this is a, uh, a pathway that leads up toward uh, the house where John uh, actually lived, and uh, on the other side of it is actually where he is buried, but it's still the, uh, the ruins and the remnants are still today, and for 1,800 years, people have visited there to see that, and I think that's a very interesting thing. Once again, this is in Turkey. Uh, it's... Um, the city itself was so ornate, and we're looking at it in its remnant stage right now, uh, the old ruins of the city, but it was so ornate that if a traveler would have come and seen that, it would have just absolutely blown their mind. And people were just sucked into that region, a half a million or more of them lived in that one uh, city, and uh, very, very few of them were Jews, though there were a few Jews. Because there, there was a synagogue. But when you think of a synagogue uh, in the Bible, uh, the word synagogue there actually refers to an assembly of, of 10 or more Jews. So all it took was 10 to have a synagogue. And oftentimes they actually met, when they had the synagogue, they actually met open air. They didn't even meet indoors, though sometimes they did. Actually, the word EIS is used in the Greek there where it says Paul entered in. Or he went into the synagogue, and the word EIS means to go into. So apparently, uh, the, the small group of Jews that were already in Ephesus when Paul got there uh, had banded together, and they had their own Jewish synagogue, or they had a building of some kind that they were meeting in. It, it obviously would not have been a large one because they were an outcast. The Jews were hated in their religious position, even in that day, for one main reason, and that is they were very mono, monotheistic. They just believed that there was one God. 
uh, and they did not believe that there were just all of these different gods. And so the pagans and the Gentiles uh, despised them because they thought, well, you just believe there's only one God and your God's the only God. and We don't believe in your God. We believe in all these other gods. And this entire uh, position of defiance began to take place and it still follows them today. And you and I know that there is only one God. Can I have a better amen than that? And he's, uh, he's manifested three separate, distinct, eternal ways. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And even in uh, Judaism, is still looking for the Messiah. We know the Messiah has come. And that was Paul's position. He taught constantly that the Messiah had already come. He did not argue with them over their doctrine. He added to the revelation of their doctrine, and that oftentimes, of course, caused the problem. Uh, let's go to the next scripture, the, the next, uh, right here, these four columns right here uh, today surround the place where John himself is actually baptized, I mean, excuse me, buried. That's where John the Beloved uh, was buried, and these particular columns would, would be all over. When you went down the main market street of Ephesus, historians say there were 300 massive marble columns that lined 300. Can you imagine that? And you're walking down there and you're walking into all the grandeur of this place uh, in its um, uh, architectural structure, plus just all the philosophical positions that have been taken there and all the, the religions that were taught there. And now you're coming to teach the new religion. That was the one of Jesus Christ. When Paul goes there in Acts chapter 18. Listen to this thought with me. In chapter 17, he had just been in Athens. He's at Mars Hill, and he preaches uh, at a place called, where, where all of the intellectual minds of that era of the Greeks especially would get there at, in Athens at Mars Hill. But anyone that had a philosophy, anybody that had a theology, anybody that had a, uh, a, an idea or a concept of, of wisdom, they thought, they wanted you to come and get in that that. Uh, quite unique uh, arena and spell it out and let everybody judge it and everyone listen to it. So Paul went there in chapter 17 of Acts. And while he's there, he begins to talk to them. And as he talks, he talks about those seven or eight main things. And he says things like, first of all, there was a creation. There was a God that created. That still blows people's mind today. He said there's creation Secondly, he said, God gives life unto all. That really messes people up because God's the one who gives life. Then he begins to talk about a lifestyle of godliness. This is in Acts 17 that must be lived. There's, there is accountability. Then fourthly, he says, and God made all men from one blood. That really got the blood boiling at Mars Hill. And he continues to talk. And then finally, he says... Uh, he says, Jesus is going to return back in judgment one day. And the last thing he said, the reason that he will come back with judgment is because he arose from the dead. And when he said he arose from the dead, the Bible says when, he, when they talked about the resurrection, the people said, this guy is a fool. Nobody can come back from the dead. And they threw Paul out of there and said, get out of here. But some people believed the problem was this. He did not, it's the only place we have recorded where Paul got up and began to speak like that, where he didn't actually bear down on the fact that I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. It's the only place. 
And he gets thrown out, but he did have a few converts, the Bible says, at Mars Hill. There were a few that believed, and he left. And when he left, chapter 18 begins of Acts, and he says, I'm going to go to Corinth. And when he starts to go to Corinth, if you read that and you read in the Corinthians also, you realize he traveled this particular time, uh, uh, apparently just he and his uh, one traveling mate that he took with him just about everywhere he went to help him. So as Paul is going toward Corinth, Instead, of, he, he takes kind of a, a scenic route and he tries to get over there to it. It takes him a little while and he's declaring some things he says to himself. Later on, he pins it down. He says, I come to you not with wisdom, not with man's philosophies, with none of those things. He said, but I have determined to come declaring nothing to you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, the last time I preached... I did not declare what I was supposed to declare. I tried to just be a philosopher and talk with them on their level of philosophy and it didn't work. He said, from now on, I'm not going to... Listen, the guy could speak 33 languages. Paul could speak 33 languages, historians say. He was a philosopher like, like Socrates and Plato. He had that level of intellect. He was absolutely brilliant. And he finally said, you know what? It doesn't make any difference. From now on, when I get a chance to preach, I'm going to declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. Somebody shout amen. amen. And so from Mars Hill, this great philosophical think tank, he, he, gets, uh, he gets kicked out of that place, he leaves, he's kind of depressed over his performance that he had done, and he winds up, he said, I'm going to Corinth. So he goes to Corinth, and when he gets there in chapter 18, he begins to preach again. He finds a little synagogue, a group that was together, and he begins to declare, some believed, some didn't believe. After a while, they got upset at him, and they finally kicked him out, and they uh, uh, carry him up to uh, uh, Galilee, and so Galilee said, look, I don't care about your religion and your philosophy. If the guy has broken the Roman law, I'll deal with him. But if he's just broken your philosophical religious law, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Let him go. That made everybody mad. Paul left and he got in his boat and he went to Ephesus. When he comes into Ephesus, he comes into this, go to the next one if you would, please. He comes into the next picture. He comes into an area that would be something like this, a, a, a colonnade of, of, of streets, marketplace right here. Imagine huge columns right here that are about 30 to 40 feet tall and polished. Everything was, uh, just go back with me about, about 1900 years here, if you would, please, and see this thing. Uh, just absolutely spit-shined and, and, and immaculately groomed. And the whole city is this way with all of its commerce and all of its uh, debauchery that's going on. Uh, one of the main things in that city, it was well known. Ephesus is well known for its brothels. And so people, the sailors, and not only the sailors, but the people themselves thought they had a Shangri-La type of, uh, of lifestyle in Ephesus. And... Um, uh, almost everyone had a slave in Ephesus. That's why you see Paul writes to the slaves in the book of Ephesus because the main market center over there on the side would be where they would sell slaves. There was a place and he would have had to have seen it. And then when he writes later, he start, he's writing to slaves. Little does he know that a lot of the people that are being sold into slavery are ultimately going to become members of his church. Many of them. I'm preaching real good right now. So Paul was saying, it doesn't make any difference. I'll, I'll declare the gospel of Jesus to, the, to a slave just like I will to an emperor. He said, nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Somebody shout hallelujah. hallelujah. 
He said, that's my foundation. That's that's what I'm going to build off of from now on. So this beautiful uh, colonnade, and these are the ruins there. Go to the next one, if you would, please. I hope I can remember all these things. This is kind of a map of the seven churches right here. You'll see uh, Ephesus is right on the coast down. It's the bottom one on the left-hand side right there. There's Ephesus, Smyrna. um, uh, Yeah, say it out loud. Read the next one to me. Pergama, then Smyrna, come down to, uh, what is it? Uh, Tatara, then, uh, yeah, thank you. So there all seven of them are. So from Ephesus, they go out from there all the way, and they make this circle that kind of goes up like this and comes back around, and Laodicea is here. And in the book of Revelation, we will touch on all of these churches in this seven-point series. Are you all enjoying this tonight? Uh, go to the next one, if you would, please. Uh, on the top one up here would be uh, Ephesus. These are remnants that are there in these regions still today. There's Ephesus on the top, one of its huge buildings that it has. These things are massive architectural structures. The second one, uh, the, the middle one, that's Smyrna. The one below it is Pergamos. Some of the ruins of those areas where they built the churches. Go to the fourth one, if you would. Go to the next one, the next picture. Uh, no, 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 that's the last one. That's Laodicea. Go back one. Or go to the next one then. No, just stay there. That's uh, there, There's seven of them. There's the amphitheater uh, that would be in Ephesus. That's kind of a, a faraway shot of the amphitheater that's in Ephesus. This place seated 24,000 people. These are the remnants that are there. That's where they had all of their theatrical performances. They had many political things and also were the gladiators and were many, many Christians. You're looking at a place where, where, where thousands and thousands of Christians under the Roman rule uh, in Ephesus were martyred for the name of Jesus. All they had to do was uh, reject Jesus and claim that, that especially dominion, uh, the emperor was their God. That's all they had to do. And he would let them live and they literally died by the thousands refusing to uh, deny that Jesus was their new Lord. They probably weren't born into uh, Christianity. It would have been a very, very few of them that even had an opportunity because Christianity was so new at that point. It was less than 50 years old. Can I have an amen here? But that revelation of who Jesus was and the impact that, that humanity is not on this earth just to do our thing from day to day. There is a world to gain. There is a heaven to gain. There is a purpose for us being born. Paul said we are pilgrims and strangers. We are just passing through. I don't know about you, but I'm on the way to heaven tonight and I just came by here to tell you about it on the way. That's what he's saying. The day that heaven becomes more real than earth to you is the day you're just about in a position to be used by God. Your forever is a lot more impacting than your today. But what you do today has a lot to do with forever. You and I, as human beings, are not animals. We are not rocks. We are not plants. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. And we're going to live forever somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. For me and my house, I choose heaven. And what we do in this period of time determines eternity. Just like the nine months that are in the womb of a mother determines so much about a human when they are actually birthed. 
By the same token, we are in that, that very embryonic stage of, of eternity called life. We're there right now, and what we do for Jesus Christ determines our eternity. For me to live, Christ to you. Me to die, a gain for me, Paul said. I'm kind of torn between the two. It seems like the greater his revelation of heaven, uh, the, the more he wanted to go there. How many of you are glad Satan can't threaten us with going to heaven? It's a great day in your life. When you're willing to die for Jesus, I'd like to tell you, your kids will be willing to live for him. Go to the next one, if you would, please. Another side view of how they would sit in the amphitheaters there and, and, and in the theater. That's not an amphitheater. That was a, a full theater uh, that is there. 24,000, they say, could, uh, could fit in there. Uh, in the great theater of Ephesus, uh, there many, many events took place in the city. Go to the next one, if you would, please. Uh, this is a picture of what's called Market Street. And uh, Market Street, now it's all, these are remnants, these are ruins, and in that stand of trees right there is something called a tolos, T-O-L-O-S. A tolos was actually a place where you could offer sacrifices, and so the business people or the, the people uh, of that day that had a special agenda would go there and offer a sacrifice to any god they wanted to, basically, hoping for success or for a, you know, an achievement or something of that nature. In that particular area, it's a very interesting area right there. And once again, all of this is well recorded in history, in ancient history, in old world history. Uh, you and I are so used to, uh, thank you for that. Uh, we're so used to just uh, thinking of the Christian walk as an American thing. We forget before you and I ever came on the scene, someone else paid a price, an enormous price for us to be able to serve Jesus the scripture says it like this. So Paul comes into this city at Ephesus. Let me conclude with this for this evening. Paul comes into this city of Ephesus. He brings with him uh, two people from Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, who were also very intelligent people. And the Bible says once he got there in verse 19, he comes to Ephesus and he enters into the synagogue. So apparently there was a small band of Jews that were there already who would meet together for Judaistic purposes. And Paul sought them out. And when he found them, he goes in right in there and he begins to reason with them. And the word reason is a beautiful word in the Greek. And it's the word we get our word dialogue from. But anyway, it's the word dia, dialogo, uh, dialogomai. And it just means to persuade or to dispute or to convince with a very convincing uh, position. Paul understood some things. He had had uh, two experiences where Jesus, he saw Jesus personally. And Jesus talked to him and, and, and explained things to him. So it was powerful in what he was doing. Plus, he could memorize the first five books of the Bible. He understood the, uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Septuagint. He, he could actually speak the actual uh, old uh, most of the Old Testament he memorized. It's an interesting thing. That particular uh, Old Testament that was written in Hebrew was translated over into Greek. It was translated over by Alexander the Great's, uh, actually Cleopatra's peoples who did it, uh, and, and that offshoot in Alexandria, uh, which was in Egypt. Uh, they uh, literally translated the old uh, Jewish uh, 
scripts and rolls and all of their manuals and the Old Testament as we know it today, they translated that into Greek so their own people could see it. And we have that, and that today is called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is, it's actually a word that means 70. And, it was, uh, and so it's done because to honor the 70 Jewish scholars that translated it into Greek. Therefore, they just called it the Septuagint, and that's where it is today, and it still is that today. Is this boring? I'm just asking. This is, this is what I feed on. This stuff just, just, just makes me want to shout. So in verse 20 it says, he goes in and begins to declare to them. And when they desired him to tarry for a long time, uh, he consented not. So the Bible says they really wanted him to stay hard and he wouldn't. But he bade them farewell saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again uh, unto you if God will. And he sailed. Uh, from Ephesus. Now it's important to hear this. The reason he had to leave because he had taken a vow in verse 18 says he had taken a vow. And in that vow, he shaved his head and it was a Nazarite vow in the Nazarite vow. And I believe he did that according to first Corinthians. So he could gain an access to some people who were Jews. He thought he had an, uh, an opportunity to do that. So he said to the Jew, I became all things to the Jew. I became a Jew to the Gentile I became a Gentile. If I could win them, he said, if I could win him for Christ, I did it. So he, the Bible says he shaved his head and he took this vow. But part of the ritual of that vow could only be fulfilled at the temple in Jerusalem under the law. So he goes back to Jerusalem because he wants to be there for Pentecost for the feast day. But also he wants to keep his vow. So the next time he sees these guys, he can tell them, I did it. And Jesus is still Lord. I believe he's trying to gain their confidence to be able uh, to witness to them, of course, and to convert them. He would do anything to get someone saved. Somebody shout amen. amen. The Bible says, and so he left. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and, and, and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. He keeps on going. Uh, after that, he had spent some time there. He departed went over the country to Galatia and um, uh, Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now watch this. And a certain Jew named Apollos. Will y'all give me about 10 more minutes? Would you give me 10 minutes? A certain Jew named Apollos. This is a really powerful thing. Apollos, born at Alexandria. So he's born, uh, of course, in Alexandria. Uh, he's an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. Now, there's, there's no Christian church in Ephesus. There's cultism everywhere. There's all kind of mysticism and philosophy and mystics. And it's, it's everywhere with all of the opulence and all of the sin on every level. I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. History well records and the commerce is just flowing through there. Rome loves this place because of its beautiful Mediterranean type uh, breezes. The whole climate is just gorgeous for them. So it's, it's a place where people long to go and not serve God. And there God sends Paul the Apostle. And from there, he ultimately launches missionary works that go all over in those seven churches and others, but the seven that are named are the ones we'll talk about that God talked about when he spoke to, uh, to John, uh, when John had his visitation on the island of Patmos. John winds up here uh, uh, in, in about 67 AD. Now listen, it's important to hear this because it's 52 AD 
when Paul comes there. The Apostle Paul gets there at 52 AD with Aquila and Priscilla. He drops them off. He leaves. He's only there a short time. It doesn't say how long he was there, but it was a short time on his first visit. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla. They start doing the the whole evangelistic thing, sharing and witnessing and trying to find a way to uh, talk to someone about uh, the Lord. And they are uh, tent makers themselves, so they have a little bit of an occupation. Uh, There's plenty they can do. And um, in the process, one day they go into a synagogue or open air, one of the two. And here's a guy named Apollos who was from Alexandria, and the guy is brilliant when he's speaking. He's probably more eloquent than the Apostle Paul, which would really be saying something. This guy begins to speak, and as he begins to speak, they're caught by what he has to say. Now watch this. The Bible says they listened. He was mighty in the Scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. So he'd been trained in Alexandria, probably had gone to Corinth because of his doctrine. Later on, I'll talk about that. Not tonight, but uh, had probably come through uh, Alexandria. And so consequently, uh, the scripture says, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Everybody say the Lord. Lord. Right there, that word Lord right there is actually the, the Greek word for Jesus itself. So King James says the Lord, but it's actually the word for Jesus. I think that's real interesting, buddy. Isn't that interesting? That this man had learned philosophically about Jesus because the scriptures had been translated from Hebrew into Greek. He's a Jew, but he had grown up in Alexandria. And there, uh, Alexandria had the largest library in the world. It had a half a million manuscripts at least, and the keeper of the library, or the librarian, the head librarian, and his name is on your handout there, the, the head librarian, their whole target was to get a copy of all known manuscripts and put them in that great library. So um, uh, Ele- uh, Alexandria had the largest library, and, and the entire um, weight was pla- in Alexandria was placed upon education and philosophy and all of the brilliance that can come with that. And here comes one of their stars, Apollos, who has listened and are studied and read about the Jews believing there is a Messiah that will come. And at some point, which I believe was in Corinth, probably at Mars Hill or in that area, at some point he had found out that maybe Jesus Whoever this Jesus guy is, is the one who's filling the role of the Messiah. So he goes into a synagogue and he begins to eloquently speak. And as he's speaking, he begins to declare, now it's possible that it's this Jesus guy. He doesn't have a revelation yet of Jesus as Lord. He has information powerfully that it looks like it's Jesus. So he's declaring this in the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla are like, what? Listen to the level of intellect and the language and the way this guy has such a mastery of the language. Listen to him declare and the scriptures. And he's talking, he's actually saying that Jesus is the Messiah that's to come. Listen to him. And so they took that guy, the Bible says. He was instructed, look in verse uh, 25. He was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in his spirit, which meant that he was just real turned on. He was zealous in his spirit when he would speak. Uh, He taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Very interesting. He did know about the baptism of John. 
I'm sure he had heard uh, that, that John is baptizing Jesus. Look, there's Jesus. And John baptized him. And men must be baptized uh, for uh, the remission of sin. And so he's teaching this whole thing. And uh, according to the, the, the actual Greek itself, it's not that he had a deep revelation. He had a huge uh, bowl of information. And he's speaking it out. And he's talking about it up to the point of John's baptism. The scripture says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, whom Aquila and Priscilla, they had heard, they took unto him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. In other words, they said, look, not only is Jesus uh, the one that uh, John was talking about, but he was born of a virgin. And he lived a sinless life. And he died as the sacrifice. And he arose from the dead. Well, John didn't even know, apparently, that Jesus had arisen from the dead. He certainly didn't know about, uh, um, excuse me, Apollos didn't know that the day of Pentecost had even happened yet. He just knew that this, he, with all of his knowledge of all the religions and the philosophies that come out of Alexandria, uh, he, he's, he goes into the Jewish temple and begins to just hook up about Jesus. He might have had a little edge to him if you want to know the truth. He might have been in there just kind of twisting the light, saying, well, look, not only do I know all of the law, not only can I speak that better than all of y'all in here, but I also know it's possible that this Jesus guy is the one that's fulfilling it. Aquila and Priscilla hear this and they say, get that guy. And the Bible says they took him into themselves. And they said, come here, man, you got to listen. We know a guy who knows him personally. He's talked, there's people that talk to him. We're telling you the Holy Spirit he talked about has been poured out, all of those things. And so uh, when he began to do that, he began to speak boldly. And when he was disposed, verse 27, they, they, verse 26, they expounded unto him the way. Anytime you hear that, it just means a full explanation of who Jesus is. Give me five more minutes and we're done. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. That's a powerful thing. They even wrote letters, Aquila and Priscilla did, said, I'm telling you, man, this guy believes it. And if this guy comes in and speaks in your church, you need to have him come. Can I just say this? Unless the Holy Ghost speaks to me personally, if someone new is going to come speak in this church, I get recommendations. I'm preaching better than your amen. They've been doing that since day one. They wrote letters exhorting the brother, the brethren, uh, to receive Aquila, who when uh, Apollos, who when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews. And that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Man, this guy was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant, the scripture says. These words for eloquent right here and mightily speaking and all of that, he eloquently spoke. They're, they're powerful words that meant that he was, he was a cut above in his intellect. This guy would talk and everybody would listen. Even if they didn't believe, they wanted to hear what he had to say. And then the scripture says, Aquila and Priscilla and the brethren wrote letters and said, y'all don't let this guy speak in your church because man, when this guy starts talking, he's really starting to get into it himself. He thinks Jesus is the Christ. 
And the Bible says he helped people with his volume of understanding. It came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, so Apollos left and went back to Corinth. Paul passed through the upper coast of Ephesus, out on the outer side of Ephesus there. He found certain disciples. There were some disciples. They were scattered out. There were not many of them. Probably people that had listened to Apollos declare. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Well, then under what were you baptized? And they said, Under John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized. I don't believe they were ever saved. Or else Paul would not have rebaptized them. So they're hearing something, but they don't understand who Jesus is yet in the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. They obviously have been taught this under Apollos' a doctrine or someone who had actually enlightened Apollos. And now Paul comes around and he says, wait a minute, there's a missing ingredient here. You need the Holy Ghost. I said, you need the Holy Ghost. They said, well, we've been, we've been baptized. He said, yeah, but it hadn't took yet. There's a missing ingredient. You need the Holy Ghost. And the scripture says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Oh my goodness. Now a church begins to be birthed. They spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. And I'll pick this particular teaching up in our next session. Would that be all right? Clap your hands to the Lord if you receive that tonight. This is Walter Hallam, and I want to thank you for listening today and just receiving that good word of God that you've gotten off of this podcast. You know, bringing a podcast to you, it's free to you, but it costs to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. You can be a partner. You can help support. Uh, Men and women I found are so generous when the word of God is coming into their life. They want to help take that gospel to someone else. You can text to give today to 832-981-1601. And you can give any support, any amount, and it will be a great blessing. And it will help take the gospel of Jesus uh, to someone else. We'll go the next day and the next day. So text to give today, 832-981-1601. And I want to thank you in advance because without you and with others who support, it would be so difficult for us to get the good news of Jesus Christ into this great generation. Do your part today. Thanks for helping. I love you. I can't wait to see you on the next podcast.